Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. Today I'm sitting down with Simon Dixon. He is the CEO and co-founder of Bank to the Future. He's also, also the author of a book also titled Bank to the Future, Protect Your Future Before Governments Go Bust. Um, he talks a lot about the same type of content that I typically talk about, but I have a lot of questions for him. So I'm excited to sit down with Simon. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been consuming some of your content, so it seems like there's a lot of synergy. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, I've been you know following you for quite a while, watching your content, and uh, like I said, yeah, we definitely do line up on a lot of stuff. But for those that don't really know who you are, just give us a little background on on uh, what you've been doing and what you're up to. Yeah, so I've been um, working around the subject of monetary reform for about 20 years. I started as a economist at university, did a master's there. Uh, then I worked in investment banking, so I worked as a stockbroker. Then I was a market maker on the London Stock Exchange and then an investment banker helping companies go public. Uh, in 2006, decided to throw in the corporate towel and return to economics and started giving lots of uh, talks and, and content around unsustainable banking and money reform, um, but no one really cared. So then this big thing happened in 2008 called the financial crisis. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, people were interested. So uh, that's when I came across somebody that uh, I was writing my book, Bank to the Future, um, on how to, drive, how to drive more sustainability in the banking system. Um, and I was introduced to one of the very first Bitcoin developers that had moved out of his house, um, sold his house, moved to a squat in London. Uh, and uh, I went there and then spoke at the very first Bitcoin conference in the world. Um, and just been involved in investing in the industry ever since and founded the company banktothefuture.com to help people invest in the industry. Yeah, so, um, you know, you talked about uh, in 2006 kind of leaving to go back and start talking about this unsustainable um, banking system that we have, unsustainable money system that we have. And so that's a long time. I mean, that's 14 years now you've been talking about that. Um, I know I got uh, kind of educated into like gold and sound money by Peter Schiff. And he's been talking about the same thing for a really long time. And it almost seems like um, it's inevitable. Like we see it's coming, but when, right? I've been following Peter Schiff for a long time. You've been talking about this for 14 years. Um, I understand the win is uh, difficult, but it's like, is a, you know, the broken clock is right twice a day or whatever. Like, like it's unsustainable and we're moving towards this inevitable end, but like how far can they move that? Do you think about that? Yeah, I think about that a lot. And um, really, if you look at what we, what our financial system works is um, I call it the world's largest regulator Ponzi scheme. Um, and really we have these different cycles where our economy has to have debt to survive because money is debt. And so without, without debt, you can't have money in the existing system. And so you have these like 10 year debt cycles um, that lead to some kind of systemic risk event. So we had the, the credit crisis in terms of uh, mortgage loans and subprime loans, but we keep getting these different events and then recycling the debt. So we have to find a new market for debt at every cycle. Um, and uh, I think that the, the government and the central banks have shown that they're willing to kick the can down the road for as long as they can because they don't believe in markets anymore. 
Um, so they believe that the stock market should never crash. It should always go up. And every time it does crash, that they need to fill that gap. Um, and they do that by either encouraging consumers to take on more debt, companies to take on more debt, um, by a central bank uh, buying their bonds and then them pushing up prices, um, or governments taking on that debt, or central banks uh, taking on that debt through QE. Um, but I think that we're going to hit, rather than a, a, a systemic crash of the whole system, um, I think we're going to actually hit a, a monetary reform similar to what we saw in 1944 when uh, we had Bretton Woods, and in 1971 when they went off the gold standard. Um, and uh, I'm forecasting that we will see a monetary renegotiation before we'll see a systemic collapse of the entire system. Um, and I think they've got a few more tricks up their sleeves to kind of uh, roll it up um, a little bit further. And the implications, rather than allowing the financial system to collapse, um, is that a new, a new monetary system will be created that will really affect your personal liberties, privacy, privacies, and freedoms. Um, but they will be able to make it sustainable. And I think that uh, uh, the, I've got a few ideas on how they'll do that. Wow. That's a, that's a great topic, and we are going to dig into that. But before we do, um, you talked about how um, our system is, is a debt-based system, and our money is really uh, debt, right? And so um, our whole system is built off debt, so if we don't continue to increase the debt, then it falls apart. Um, but it's a, our money is a debt-based system compared to what? What other money system is there? Uh, well, there are different forms of money in the economy. So I, I created a video once called Six Forms of Money. One of them, um, you know, the government do actually create non-debt-based money. It's called cash and coins. Um, so the notes and cash in your pocket is not created as debt. Um, it's simply created and sold to a bank uh, when they need to. Uh, so if essentially when you print a note, it costs about three cents for the to be created by the Royal Mint or whoever it is in which country you're in. Um, and if it was, say, a $10 note, there'd be $9.97 margin, and it's sold to a bank, um, and that profit of $9.97 reduces the amount of tax that one needs to pay. It's called seniorage. Um, and about 3% of the money supply is created debt-free by, by governments, um, and uh, it, uh, it's added to Treasury's balance sheet, and it's a form of income. But the rest of the money, 97% of it, was outsourced to the private banking sector. Um, and so the private banking sector, they create a digital currency every time they issue a loan. And it's a digital representation of the government's debt-free currency. So the cash and coins is a debt-free currency. Um, and anything in your online banking is all a digital currency that's created by the private banking sector and backed by debt. In, if you rewind into history, you had things like in the American Civil War, um, Abraham Lincoln actually created a greenback, which was a debt-free money supply, um, and it funded the uh, American Civil War. Um, and so there are, throughout history, there's never been you know, a, this absolute conclusion that money has to be created as debt. And in fact, if anyone was to engineer a financial system from scratch, nobody would come up with that solution. Um, it actually was just through decades and decades of uh, reforms, uh, it, it actually turned into the financial system we have today. And many people confuse this. They think that debt's the problem. Debt in itself is not the problem. The problem is creating money as debt, which is the problem. 
So once you've got a money supply, you can use debt as a very you know, legitimate instrument to, for people that want to put together borrowers and savers like peer-to-peer lending or collateralized loans like we see in the crypto markets. Um, uh, but when you give someone simultaneously the ability to create new money every time they issue a loan, you end up in a Ponzi scheme where debt is required in order to have an economy. Um, so there's these different schools of thoughts around monetary systems. You know, um, some people believe that you need to regulate how much digital currency a bank can create through Austrian economics and the gold standard. Um, I go a, a step further that I think you shouldn't allow banks to create money um, rather than using gold to regulate how much money they create. Yeah. So if we, if we kind of go backwards, and, and as you said, this has really evolved for a long time, but if we look at maybe some big moment, you know, monumental times throughout history, really we had, as you mentioned in 44, like the Bretton Woods Agreement, so the whole world was on a gold system. And so you had to have a certain amount of gold, a reserve for the amount of money that you created. And then um, I guess even at that point, it was like, it was like leveraged, but at least it was somewhat backed. It wasn't hundred percent debt backed. I mean, is that correct? And then in 1971, we got off the gold standard and it became hundred percent debt backed. Is that how you see it? Or is that? Yeah, so right? yeah, there was, there was different forms of gold standard and it evolved over time, but the, the most recent one was 40% backed by gold. Um, and it was used as a mechanism in order to keep central banks and the private credit creation system in check, right. uh, because you'd end up losing all your gold if you if you uh, had you know bad monetary policy. Um, then that was, but the 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 problem with the gold standard is that it is inevitable, predictable, and guaranteed to be re, reneged on, um, because if you act, you know many many economists blame the Great Depression on the gold standard because they couldn't create the amount of money that they wanted to create. Um, And there's some truth in that, but there is another option, which is actually creating money debt-free rather than debt-backed and competing with other forms of free money, um, you know, uh, more free market money. Um, But yeah, and and then in 1971, with the Nixon shock uh, that was executed in 1973, we essentially moved to a US dollar debt-backed standard and all currencies were traded against each other. So the financial system that we have today isn't actually that old. And uh, if you look back at monetary history, with the exception of the British pound, which was a a world reserve currency for about 300 years, um, on average, no currency has survived more than 50 years. And in fact, an average of 27 years. So we are due a monetary renegotiation. And throughout the 5,000 years of monetary history since gold has been around, um, we always get them. Yeah. Yeah. They say the pound is the most successful currency in the world because it's been around the longest, but in terms of holding value, it sure hasn't done a very good job, has it? Uh, no fiat currency has ever survived and never holds value. So um, there's, there's no, there's, none of them are a good store of value. They're, they're actually designed not to hold value, right? Because they're built with this inflation mechanism into it. So it's, it's meant to lose value over time. Exactly. And if you are, um, if you hold like the US government, almost $30 trillion of debt, then you want the value of the currency to go down um, so that you don't have to repay a larger amount of debt each month. You know, that's, that's designed into the system. Right. So we have this debt based system. And I think since 1971 or 73, when we got off the gold standard, we've created something like, whatever, $300 trillion 
out of debt, you know, out of debt or whatever. And it seems like, as you just said, about every 10 years, we have this kind of monetary shock. And it's almost like this, this, this balloon tries to deflate and then they have to pump it back up and then it tries to deflate and then it tries to, they, they pump back up. But each time they pump it back up, it goes bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and you think that they still have a couple more pumps left, a couple more tricks left? Um, I actually think that this one within the next three to five years or even in the next year or so, um, you've got to time that with election cycles because no one will do a monetary reform when they're about to be elected. So you've got to get through the next election cycle. And I'm talking about America because, you know, 70% uh, of all currency in the world is dollars and 50% of all transactions are dollars. Right. So, you know, dollars uh, uh, it affects everyone. Right. Um, and so you've got to get past that. And then I think we're, we're at a very interesting time in history. Um, and in 2011, I uploaded a video to my YouTube channel called The Great Depression of 2020s. Um, and it talked about this cycle of Keynesian monetarism economics um, and then leading to the systemic risk events. And um, the video said it in 2020, I didn't know a pandemic was coming, but I knew that something was coming because uh, there's always a trigger. Um, and then the difference is, is that each time, I think the appetite uh, of what one needs to do. So what tools do we have? We don't have interest rates anymore. Um, we have the central bank's balance sheet and now they've announced infinite, you know, um, and that's working to keep investors into the stock market. Now they've announced infinite QE. Um, but eventually you get some kind of, you know, systemic risk event. I'm forecasting that it will be the end of some of the government subsidies that leads to more unemployment, more bankruptcies, and some of the loans that was just restructured, um, which are due to if the, the, the last bit of uh, bailout for U.S. consumers um, was that businesses could borrow money. Um, and if they agree to keep their, um, their, um, their staff and don't lay any off by the end of October, then they don't have to repay the loan. So a lot of people are keeping their staff on, not so that they don't have to repay the loan. And then I think it will lead to a lot of... Uh, another spike in unemployment, um, which will then expose the weakness of the uh, real estate markets, um, when at the moment, the, essentially all mortgages and real estate is being paid by the individuals that are living month to month because of these government subsidies. And so if some of those go, um, then it exposes some of the weaknesses in a couple of systems, the banking system, and also the pension system, because the bank sold all their bad debt to your pension already. Um, during the last financial crisis. Um, but the, the, when, when we have to rescue those systems, the options you have is a bail-in, um, which is essentially the bank saying that they will take your deposits and use it. And they usually issue some kind of stock like they did in Cyprus, where instead of your deposit, you end up with bank stock. Um, or they can do a bailout. But I think with the record levels of civil unrest um, and rioting right now, if the government proposed to bail out any of the banks um, as a result of this, I don't think they could get away with it this time. So what I'm forecasting is that um, they will actually allow the banks to go bust this time, but they don't want depositors to lose their money. The way they can do that is through a central bank digital currency, um, which every central bank in the world has already been working on. Um, and that central bank digital currency could be, let's say you had $10,000 at Chase Bank, and Chase Bank was, was uh, not bailed out this time, 
then you could download an app and it would contain $10,000 of a central bank digital currency. And that money is debt-free money. Essentially, you're taking all the over leverage of the bank and you're replacing it with debt-free money issued by the government or the central bank, just like they issued the greenbacks to fund the American Civil War. But this time it will be fully digital um, and they can put a stimulus package out there. Their next round of helicopter money could be download this app, uh, we'll give you the money, um, and they deleverage the leverage in the banking system and replace it with a central bank digital currency is what I think their next move is. And so essentially that central bank taking on all the balance sheet of the world um, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and becoming a bank and issuing API keys, allowing financial technology companies to build on top of it um, and uh, moving to a more peer-to-peer -peer financial system. Um, but it will be very, very expensive, as I said, in terms of the impact that currency has on your freedoms, your liberties and uh, your, your privacy. Um, is yeah. going to not be a very nice currency in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I actually see something very similar, and that's, that's interesting you bring that up. I, I want to talk about that. Um, but before we do, just to kind of pre-frame that for the listeners, um, so uh, typically the way that it's been done is the central banks have been um, creating more debt, and they've been doing that, as you said, really through quantitative easing, um, which means that money really goes into the banks and it and really just goes, goes back to more financial assets. It's never really been given to the people until just recently with this pandemic where they gave a little bit. I mean, 1200 bucks to some people if they make under a certain amount of money or whatever, right? Um, but what you're talking about is something different where the, instead of bailing out the banks and the financial system like they, they are doing today, you're saying they might just say, ah, screw those guys. Let's just go and bail out the people directly. Yeah, so you've you got to look at when each, each debt cycle creates a, a, a greater level of debt from consumers, businesses, and governments. Um, and all of that debt needs to be repaid plus interest. Well, it doesn't need to be repaid because it's always rolled over. Um, and as long as the credit rating of the US government is okay, they can keep rolling it over for as long as people will take it. Um, but uh, the, yeah, the, each inflation is not just for me um, just an increase in the money supply. It's also the factor in the interest of all of this debt. So if you have to service a lot of your debt and your debt levels are increasing at every cycle, um, you inevitably have to put your prices up to factor in the interest on your debt. Um, and so inflation is, is not just, in my perspective, a monetary phenomenon, but it's also interest rates and debt phenomenon. Um, that is factored into the equation. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, if you look at, if you look throughout history, that um, money printing during a depression has always been non-inflationary in most cases. But if you continue to print the money supply and increase the money supply uh, during a, boom, a, a bull market, as you start to enter recovery, um, you start to get you know, a destructive effect on the, the currency in terms of risking moving into an inflationary environment um, and if it goes terribly wrong a hyperinflationary environment like we've seen in many countries um, and so the you know it's it's not a very desirable outcome um, to do that and i think that uh, yeah the the factoring in all this debt into the equation uh, means that at this stage you, you need a complete renegotiation uh, in order to get out of that yeah. Um, as far as the end game, which you already kind of uh, highlighted, which we're going to dig into, I mean, I kind of see the same thing. But before we do, I'm trying to kind of understand what 
what triggers that because if I, we understand what triggers that, it also has implications of what that solution is. But uh, before we get back to that, just quickly, I mean, so we're talking about um, you know, the money creation and, and when will it stop or whatever. And so we have, um, I know you've talked about, you know, maybe a few different types of money systems or economic schools, schools of thought, Keynesian, um, monetarism, Austrian. Um, we have a new school of thought, maybe if you consider it that, that's really being pushed today. And I think depending on who wins the election, we're going to see it really make some inroads and that's MMT, modern monetary theory. And so we have um, the economic advisors on the Biden camp trying to push this Green New Deal, or now he's calling it the Biden deal or whatever it is, but essentially it's um, committing to spend 30 to $90 trillion to rebuild the system as a, as a you know, renewable energy. Um, and let's not, I'm not, I don't want to dig into that policy, but the fact that they can just go spend 30 to $90 trillion, where does that money come from? It's obviously this MMT of just being able to print money um, I mean, will that work? Can they continue just to print that money? And if so, won't that hold off this uh, debt collapse that you're talking about? Yes, yeah, so mod modern monetary theory is, um, so if you look at the, the system you were just talking about, the prevalent way of money creation at the moment is through quantitative easing. And what that essentially, what that is, is the central bank um, just creates money, which is a digital ledger in their balance sheet. And then they use that money in order to purchase government debt. And so the government is actually borrowing the money um, and having to pay interest on that money for money creation from the treasury to the Federal Reserve. Um, and that is a really, really inefficient system. There's no point the government borrowing the money when you start to actually understand the mechanism because the government already has the ability to create the money supply. Um, it can do that as it chooses, but instead it outsources it to the Federal Reserve um, and uh, has to repay and factor in all this debt on top of that. So modern monetary theory says, well, why doesn't the government just create the money in its own in the first place and not have to factor in all this interest and debt? Um, and uh, the reality is, is the effect is exactly the same, but it's much more efficient um, because you can remove away this pretense. You can stop having these forms of money that no one understands, M, M1, M2, M3, M4, and you can just have a money supply called M, which is the government creating money, deciding how to spend that, um, and then the people judging whether they create inflation or deflation uh, based upon a transparent form of money supply. And if the government destroys the money supply, you know who to blame. Um, you don't get this game of the Federal Reserve blaming Treasury, um, then socialists blaming capitalists, um, and all of the typical left-right wing arguments that we have today um, you know, if you, if you accept that governments can actually uh, create money rather than actually doing it indirectly and giving it to the, essentially today we have a private form of money, which is that banks create it every time they issue a loan, um, or the, the central bank creates it every time they borrow, uh, they decide to borrow, uh, allow, uh, spend more money in the government and the government borrows it from them. Um, why not just actually have a transparent form of money that's actually created by the government um, and uh, I hear all the free marketeers and everyone like rolling over their graves and concerned about that. And I too would be concerned about it. But thankfully, we have competing forms of money today, um, where if you don't like that, you can opt out. Um, but yeah, modern monetary theory states that uh, the government can just simply spend it into the economy. Um, and in effect, rather than uh, banks actually lending it into the economy, um, you just have governments doing what essentially people, most people think governments do 
which is providing the money supply to the economy. And maybe that then ties into kind of what you see being the solution. So you talk about, uh, you know, all these people with money in the bank and potentially losing the money in the bank, but also all the obligations, the pensions, um, you know, the 401ks and things like that, you know, social security, et cetera. So all the uh, obligations. And so if the system collapses, all those people that are depending on their money or their income or their retirement could potentially see it go away. And you're saying that in, if that were to happen, that I think the banks or the government would, instead of bailing out the banks to give the people back their money, they might just give the people back their money directly through this new CBDC, the central bank digital currency, um, and even maybe pay for all the obligations. And so maybe at that point, it switches from bank-based issued money to government-issued money? Yeah, we... we we essentially move from capitalism to socialism, um, and uh, that is where I think we're headed. Um, and if you want to get more extreme, then some governments will opt for communism. But we can already see that the writing's on the wall in that sense. Um, so what I'm interested in is accepting that with fiat money, the end game is 100% tax, the 100 is communism, there's riots in the streets, it's, it's, that's the end game. Um, and I don't think there's any fighting that because of the cycles that we're in. The only alternative is to actually move back to sound money, cause a depression, cause a recession, um, except that uh, everyone's going to, their real estate is massively overvalued. We have to have ginormous asset price deflation um, and, uh, and monetary inflation as well, probably. Um, so, you, you know, that's the alternative of trying to combat the system by returning to a gold standard or exercising if you were designing a system from scratch, that's probably what you'd come up with. But, but in, now we are where in, we are. In regards to that though, so you talked about, you know, at the end of whatever, World War One and going into the Great Depression, a lot of people blamed it on the gold standard because uh, I think over in you know, England, they had printed uh, way too much money to fight the war. And I think Churchill said, hey, we can't go back to the gold standard because, or no, no, it was actually, I think it was Keynes uh, warned Churchill, hey, we can't go back to the gold standard because we'll cause massive deflation. We've printed too much money, so what we have to do is we have to double the price of gold. And if we double the price of gold, things will be okay. And Churchill said, no, no, that's not going to happen. And then they revalued back to the original price of gold and everything collapsed. I mean, that, that seems to be the history that I've read. But uh, without digging into that, but back to kind of what you're talking about, we have to deflate the assets. Couldn't we just incre increase the price of gold to 50000 or 100000 yeah, I mean, so that's a, a, another solution, you know, if you subscribe to some of, uh, you know, the, the, the gold standard. And these are all viable solutions. We can return to a gold standard, decide on gold in order to make that feasible. Um, but I don't think there's any political will, and I just don't think it's something that uh, governments want to do. <laughs> that's the, the alternative. <laughs> the, the alternative to that is they can have complete control over our money, um, all of our freedoms how we spend our money, what we do with our money, how to tax the money, um, and it can move it to the end game, which is socialism um, and, and, and more communist-style society. Um, even the right wings are moving the economies over that way. You know, uh, Don't think this is a left-right argument. The systemic nature of creating money as debt drives you to 100% tax as the end game. Um, it's the only game you can get from the system. Um, and so fiat money is just inevitably moving in that direction, which is why I think the important part is to have opt-out and have alternatives uh, that people can actually uh, make choices with. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with you, right? I mean, the, 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 we just understand human nature. They're not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, let's live within our means. Although, like, they're never going to opt to go back to that. And so I say they're going to go till they blow, right? It's going to go till it doesn't work anymore. Um, but I also agree with you, and it's a great point, that um, they constantly want more power and constantly want more control, more surveillance. And so it, it helps them establish both of those. So let's talk about that. So um, I was kind of thinking similar thing to you, right? The banks collapse, we have FDIC insurance. Uh, but instead of saying, hey, we'll just give the banks back the money, let's just swap it out for a central bank digital currency. Um, I've talked about on the channel that we already know that they're already working on it. And the Fed's already said it, they've hired the execs from Coinbase. Um, probably early next year, we probably see this. Um, and so how do you think that transition works? I see that a lot of the population maybe isn't ready for that. I mean, how do you see that kind of rollout happening? Yeah, it's really easy. It won't look like Bitcoin. It won't need a blockchain. It doesn't need any of that stuff. It just needs to be a digital ledger that they sit. Um, in fact, they already do it for the private banks right now. If you have a clearing bank, uh, account with the central bank, like the the, the large clearing in, uh, banks do, uh, they uh, then there are just digital ledgers. This is how the repo markets work. This is how all the, you know, the large markets, uh, money markets for banks work. They're just simply uh, digital ledgers held at the central bank. So the easy way to roll it out is you just keep um, you keep stimulating like you are right now. You commit to unlimited QE. You do everything you can to try and win the next uh, election. And then at some point during the next year or two, some kind of systemic risk event is going to happen, as it always does. Um, you know, it, it, this one was a pandemic. The last one was a crazy little island like Iceland that got taken over by investment bankers that caused the exposed the global financial crisis. Um, you know, completely globally. And so this could be student cards, uh, student debts. This could be credit card debts. Take any one of those Ponzi schemes. Um, you know, uh, social security, whatever you want to pick, one of them is going to show yeah. their weakness. Um, and uh, that will like, expose one bank and one bank will be exposed um, to that. Or it will be your pension because the banks, you know, the, what, what came out of 2008 that never went away was the repackaging of their debt so that they don't have to take the risk and then they can sell it to your pension with a AAA grade rating on it. Um, you know, that still exists. And so, Many of the banks are in a good place because they've repackaged. That's why Warren Buffett is dumping some bank stocks and keeping other bank stocks. You know, he's getting rid of all the, the bank stocks that are over leveraged and that will be exposed to these events and keeping his Bank of America because they may not be over leveraged um, to these particular products. And so, you know, what I think will happen is you'll get uh, one of the banks that will be exposed that will then show the house of cards. FDIC can no way insure um, all of your deposits. Right. FDIC is, uh, is simply, you know, they hold their money in treasuries, which is the government debt. They don't have cash because they can't hold cash because then they'd be exposed to whichever bank they're using to insure the banking system. Right. Um, and so uh, FDIC is built for one or two banks going bust, not the entire system going systemically risk. They've only got... 1% of all the deposits in the bank is actually insured by FDIC. Um, so it's not designed to actually protect the system. So that at that stage, you, know, you need to bail out FDIC. Remember, before FDIC, there was FSLIC, which is the, the, the equivalent of the insurance for the savings and loan scheme. 
uh, that was, you know, that went bust. It couldn't ensure what it is liabilities. So it got rolled over into FDIC. So the deposit insurance protection schemes that are, are available, um, they, they can't tackle systemic risk events. They can only tackle one financial institution or two um, being exposed at this time. So the way that they could roll it out is let the bank go bust. Um, you then get to align with the people that don't want to bail out anymore. They don't want all the money, the taxpayers' money going to pay bonuses. Um, and uh, you just simply sell them. Well, how do you get traction for your new digital currency app? Well, if you had $10,000 with this bank, download this app, you now got $10,000. Um, if everyone would like, in order to simulate this economy, if everyone would like $10,000 for free, download this app. And then you're going to have to opt in to giving away all your freedoms. You're going to have to opt in for compulsory vaccines. You're going to have to opt in for automated tax collection. Um, you're going to have to opt in for every kind of freedom and liberty um, you know, that you've got being taken away one by one. Why? Because we've got this pandemic, just like we had after the last 9-11. Um, we had the ultimate reason for you to opt out, which is fear. Um, and it's genuine. You know, th this is a this is a, a, a systemic event and you have these inevitabilities that expose the weaknesses of the systems. That gets everyone to opt in. And um, already all the financial technology companies can build on top of the API of the central bank. Um, and they can, you know, the central bank doesn't want to do customer service, uh, but they'll open up their API and other financial technology companies um, can do that. And even banks will, um, you know, come back again as a, the CEOs of those banks will leave that, create their own fintech startup and build on top of the new system. Yeah, and we're already seeing that foundation built. I did a video talking about FedCoin, what we're calling it, um, and the Fed rolling this out. But um, all the banks that are tied to the Fed that are able to create the debt for the Fed are required now to build out their own uh, wallets. And so like, they're already prepping for this and to be that uh, customer service arm of the Fed, if you will, something like that. Um, do you see this uh, just happening through dollars first, or is this kind of like a global thing that happens all at the same time? Uh, that's a really hard one to forecast because I think, you know, the U.S. Um, credit rating is still very, very strong. Uh, people still consider the dollar a store of value. Um, they still consider it a flight to safety. Um, and it's a very, very strong currency in terms of its, power, its purchasing power around the world. You know, of my fiat money, I still uh, hold most of my fiat money um, in dollars. Um, and I wouldn't consider holding it in anything else other than the money that I need to spend in my domestic uh, currency. So um, I think the US has still got a bit further to go. I think in terms of the monetary renegotiation, who gets the seats at the table, I think it will be based upon who has the largest gold to GDP reserves. Um, so you've got Russia, you've got Europe, which is essentially Germany. Um, you've, got, uh, you've got China and you've got US. And I think they will be the ones that will be uh, renegotiating the new monetary system in the next five, uh, few years. Um, and so uh, yeah. Think, so, so you think this uh, rollout of the digital currency is an interim step into the new, new monetary system. So it's not the new monetary system. It's kind of what leads up to the new monetary system. Yeah. And you've also got competing forces like the IMF and the World Bank. They all want to list, they all want to list their own global digital currencies. Um, they are, you know, their, their position to be the end game of rolling up insolvent central banks. Um, and so it all depends on the strength 
I think so, you know, a bit of policy. If I were advising a smaller central bank right now, um, I would be advising them and I have been advising them to take an asymmetric bet on Bitcoin. Um, I think I, in several years back, I, I, I wrote a, I, I released a video um, called, uh, what was the video called? Um, how the how Bitcoin could become a, a central a global reserve currency um, by 2020. It's not meant to happen that way, but it's an extreme example of if you are a country like uh, Lebanon, and we're starting to see this in Iran already, in order to get around sanctions, Iran is starting dedicating some of their electricity to mining Bitcoin. Um, and if you have a currency like Lebanon that no one wants, you can't use it to purchase any mining equipment, but you might have spare electricity power, then you could use it to mine Bitcoin. You could give it to your central bank in order to hold it on some of its balance sheet. You can make an announcement to the world that you are diversifying from the dollar, gold, and treasuries, and you're holding some Bitcoin. And that would create such a, a FOMO, a countrywide FOMO, um, and big impact on the price and the market cap um, that you would end up in a situation like Bulgaria was. You know, Bulgaria, um, several years back, they confiscated 200,000 Bitcoin from um, a, a, an illegal uh, uh, crime group. Um, and that, uh, those 200,000 Bitcoin, by the time they actually got through and got those, it was worth more than the entire country's national debt of Bulgaria. Um, and funnily enough, due to crony capitalism, those Bitcoin just disappeared um, to politicians' wallets and never found themselves on the, the central bank's balance sheet or the government's balance sheet. Um, but I think it highlights the fact that you can have an asymmetric risk, just like individuals can now uh, you know, have a, an asymmetric risk on Bitcoin. I think governments, I think central banks will, I think businesses already are starting to. We started to see you know, businesses announcing that they're holding their reserves in Bitcoin. We started to see hedge funds already saying, Paul Tudor Jones saying that he's going to hold one to 2% of his uh, hedge fund in Bitcoin. Why is he doing that? Because if he can outperform the hedge fund industry through holding Bitcoin, then all the other hedge funds have to adjust to that. And he gets a higher, you know, um, he gets the highest performing hedge fund as it has in the crypto markets. Um, and I think that, that, that that translates to central banks. Now, the Federal Reserve will be the last to do that. You know, they'll be holding on to the end. Why? Because they're the incumbent. So this is a game of the disruptors disrupting the incumbent in a ginormous game of global currency wars that is determined by how much gold reserves you have and who's going to be bravest and first to Bitcoin. That's where I think we're headed over the next five years. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting over the next five years too. Um, it seems like the thing with currencies, and, and this is where like I lose a little bit on the central bank digital currencies, and I, I think this is what you're alluding to, but you can, you can correct me, but um, it seems that all currencies at the end of the day are only as good as we think they are. They're built on trust. And that's why, like, and people say, oh, it's backed by the military, but you look at like Venezuela, well, they had a military, but still nobody wanted to use the currency. It was lying the streets with, you know, like trash, right? Um, and so if the currency gets destroyed, the government can print as much as they want and give as much as they want, but nobody may want to use that. And so I think that's kind of what you're saying where, um, all, well, hey, we're going to print more money and hey, we're going to give you 10,000 of this new currency, but people don't want it. And so then they go opt for something else they think holds value or they trust, they can trust better like Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's about different use case for different money. So fiat is still a very useful form of money to me. Um, 
if I'm, you know, if I want to make short-term expenses, I hate using Bitcoin for short-term expenses. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I bought my house with Bitcoin um, and it was an absolute nuisance. It took, you know, nine months um, because the, the seller wanted, would only accept fiat money. And so I had to prove the source of wealth to the bank and I had to show them how I acquired those Bitcoins the day I acquired them, showed them on the blockchain, showed that they weren't the proceeds of crime. And that whole process took about nine months to get signed off. And uh, during that time, the price of Bitcoin, you know, went from uh, around about $20,000 to $3,000. Mm. Um, and if I was trying to, you know, make a transaction in that time, it's really, really challenging to do that. If you're spending in fiat, you know, personally, um, but when it comes to savings, like, you know, I won't be putting, I don't keep my money in, 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 in fiat currencies. I only keep my money in fiat currencies to the amount that I want to be spending over the next few years, um, you know, because it's useful for spending. And I've seen many people, I've been, you know, I spoke at the very first Bitcoin conference when it was about 40 people in a room um, through today. And I know people that were there in that room in 2011. Um, I've seen my Bitcoin crash from $30 to $3, from $1,250 to $250, to, from $20,000 to $3,000. I expect it to crash from $100,000 to $30,000 too. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I saw people in that room that still are not wealthy, um, that were there right from the beginning, uh, because they tried to manage their financial affairs with Bitcoin, and so they always had to sell it to meet living expenses. And I saw so many people that have been, that have done that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging currency. The day or if Bitcoin ever prices things in Bitcoin, then fine, you can manage your financial affairs. But I don't, I, I still think that fiat is still going to be, you know, we're not going to start thinking in terms of my milk costs 0.01326785 Bitcoin. Our, our brains cannot compute that. Um, you know, we're, uh, and global as well, because there's so many differentials around the world. So I think fiat currencies will be there. We just have to accept that the money that you hold in fiat is money that you can't own. You can't spend unless you get permission and you do things the way whoever the, the powers that be say you do it that way. And it won't maintain its value. So I'm, I'm fine with my fiat currency. I know that if I put it in a bank, the bank's the legal owner of that money. I'm lucky if they give it back to me. Um, I know that if I try and spend it, I'm going to have to send them loads and loads of documents and make sure that I only spend it on something that they think it's okay to spend on. Um, and uh, the same with the central bank digital currency. Um, and I know that it's going to be worth less in the future. And I'm okay with that because it's useful for spending um, short term. But I'm definitely not going to keep my savings in that. And I'm not going to be surprised when I download this central bank digital currency that it's going to be connected to my passport and if I try to get on a plane, if I haven't had the right vaccine, they're probably not, they're probably going to switch off that wallet. And I'm also not going to be surprised if me and you are on a Zoom call and this is being routed via a, a server in China, that the Chinese central bank, the Federal Reserve and uh, the Bank of England, um, I'm in Isle of Man, which shares the Bank of England, um, they're all going to want to automate their tax collection. And then I'm going to have to go to three different central banks and try and prove to them that, oh, I paid my tax here. Therefore, I shouldn't pay my tax here. Um, and if I don't get that settled, I also know that my passport's going to be switched off until I settle it. Um, I, I just know that that's where the world is going. So I'll only hold an amount of money that, that serves that utility. The rest of it, I'm, I'm looking to hold it in money that I can own, money that I can spend, 
and money that I know is not going to be devalued over time. Wow. You, uh, you paint a very grim future, um, which uh, I, I wish I would like to challenge you on, but unfortunately, um, it's just where things are going. And um, Well, 99% of people won't be affected by this because 99% of people are living month to month. And as long as people are living month to month on debt, they don't get affected. You know, if, you, if you've well, got they, less they, than... They, they will be affected in, in as, as you said, their liberty, privacy, freedom, uh, right? Yeah, but it, it kind of only, those, those rules only really start to kick in once you've got a balance. Um, you know, and most people don't have a balance. They're negative. Right. And so if I try and spend $10, they're not going to, that's going to go fast. It's just going to be moved. Um, if I try and, if I try and move a hundred thousand dollars, you're going to have to answer a lot of questions. Right. Um, you know, so this, this really is, um, and that's why they're petrified of a saving based economy. It's why they in America, they make gold illegal, um, because they don't want you to hoard. They don't want you to save. They want you to be in debt. The economy relies upon you being in debt. And the more and more that you can service your loans, the more the banks are happy. Um, they don't want you to repay your loans. They just want you to pay interest forever. You know, repaying the loan means that they have to go out and find another loan and deploy the capital. They just want you to cover their interest and they want you to have just enough money so that you can cover that loan. They want you to go to university so that you take on that student debt. And then they want you to start getting into real estate so that you start rolling over that debt. Um, and uh, this is how the, you know, the system is. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just being rolled over and rolled over. Yeah. Um, on the plus side, this is one of the most exciting times in financial history. There's so much innovation happening. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be a bleak. It only has to be a bleak outcome if you're not getting involved in, in what's happening. And that's why, you know, education, like what you're doing and, and teaching people all these new opportunities and alternatives. On the flip side, you know, it, it's, it's like I could feel a little bit guilty because I've got deep empathy for people's personal financial situations at the moment. I've been there. I've been in debt. I know what it's like, you know, to not be able to get on the other side of the rat race. Um, I, you know, when I first started my business, I was a hundred grand in the hole and I know the types of financial anxiety people have, um, you know, when you, 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 you're just rolling over your debt, it's not a nice situation. Um, but on the flip side, you know, this is one of the most largest wealth distributions that I think we're going to see. And you know, what's good about it? What's interesting about it? is you have the choice to be on the other side of that as well, because it's not just a game for those that are connected to quantitative easing money through central banks. Um, it's not just a game of crony capitalism anymore, where the investment banks get access to the cheap money and you pay the high interest rates. You know, this alternative financial system is being built and there's uh, lots of scams and problems involved in it, um, but anyone can be involved in it. So you know, that, that opportunity exists for everybody. So I know, I know we're running long, but hopefully you have a little bit more time because I'd like to just ask you about that. So you said that, you know, although things seem bleak, at the same time, they're full of opportunities. And so um, people who may be on the other side of that, hoping to get away from that paycheck to paycheck or behind the eight ball kind of a thing, um, have opportunities. So could you tell us what that opportunity is? How would somebody who's afraid of this, but wants to have that better life you're talking about, what kind of things should they be looking at or doing or thinking about to, to, to make that jump over? Sure. Well, first thing is to actually make a decision to um, take control of your financial future. That's the first thing, you know, that's a, a psychology game. That's a, you understanding what's been getting in the way of you achieving that to date. 
there is systemic things, you know, the system wants you to be in that way, but you've got to break that cycle. Um, once you've made that decision, you know, take all the debt that you've got, put it on a piece of paper, understand what it takes in order to get over that. That's what I did when I was deep in the hole, you know, um, put, write all that down, understand what your situation is right now. And then you just have to make a decision that um, I understand, you know, if whatever your career is, whatever your opportunity is, whether you're a business person, whether you're working for a company, whatever you decide to do, you have to make a decision from here on in to spend less than you earn and invest the difference. Yep. Um, and that's just the reality that, uh, that that's, you know, if you can get over that, then you just got to think about, well, what can I invest in? Um, and that's a, you know, that's a, an education game. Um, one of the things I'm excited about is, uh, just to answer that very same question. Um, I, I, I'm actually going to be taking a million dollars of my personal savings. Imagine that I had nothing. Um, and it doesn't matter. This could be a hundred dollars. This could be a thousand dollars. This could be 10 million, a hundred million. The numbers scale because the products are available at any level. Um, and I'll be showing them how I'll be investing it during the great depression of 2020, releasing a video series on that. Wow. Um, of exactly what I'll do. And that will be preparing for inflation, deflation, economic growth, economic decline, um, and a plan B that the entire financial system collapses. You've got to be prepared for everything because this is 100% politics and you don't know what the politicians are going to throw at you next. Definitely, definitely. It's not the time to the old way of uh, just 60-40 mix and just sit there and 20 years are going to be okay, right? It, now is the time to be what I call tactically maneuvering around this. Uh, that's a great thing. Um, well, if I can, one more question. Um, so you talk about uh, there's kind of two opposing things. So one is that we're moving to this totalitarianism, you know, environment where the banks have these digital currencies that can they control and surveil every area of your life, and and they want that. They don't want to give that up. But at the same time, you talk about there being uh, competing currencies, which give us that ability to get out of that and and have this free life. Of course being a free market guy, I believe that competition always creates better products, better services, better prices. And so we want that, but the powers that be don't want that. So there's like going to be this battle between like total control, China, the U S whatever are going to want. And then maybe these smaller kind of competing things. Um, do you think those, the, the competing markets eventually win the totalitarian, the, the fed and the China banks lose? How does that play out? No, I actually believe in yin and yang. And I think we're going to have, um, you were going to have these different systems. So, um, you know, the reason that I'm so excited about Bitcoin that has got this far, and it's a miracle that it's got this far. It was never meant to succeed. I never imagined it would get this far, but it did. Um, and thank God that we've got it. Um, you know, and right now it's virtually impossible for any government to take down in terms of some of the key risk factors. Yes, they can make it illegal in one country, but then that would be an opportunity for another country. Um, and I think that we can see that. Um, but yeah, I, I do believe in a yin and yang. I don't think it's uh, one system wins um, because Bitcoin could end up being in the hands of a very few people. And it currently is not in too many people's hands. And it could end up being you know, a ginormous wealth creation and the next round of Bitcoin billionaires become the next JP Morgans and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, you know, but there is a, there is a difference because it is built upon sound monetary principles, but it's not going to, it may not work with the redistribution effect. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that more and more people get on board at this stage when most, you know, the good thing about Bitcoin is the majority of the world still think, you know, when we first started, no one had heard of it. 
Um, but now everyone's heard of it, but the majority of the world still think it's a Ponzi scheme, a currency for drug dealers or a scam. Um, and that's what creates the asymmetric opportunity because each year more and more people realize it's not a scam, it's not a currency just for drug dealers, um, and it's not, a, it's not a Ponzi scheme. And every year for the last, um, you know, since I've been involved, more and more people realize that. And so the market cap goes up and the utility goes up and more and more people try and buy it at a higher price. 10 of the yeah. last 12 years, the highest performing asset class. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the opportunity to be in, involved in money that you can own, money that you can spend and money that can't, where the supply can't be changed um, is something that anyone can actually take on and people will get involved in that at different stages depending on their cognitive dissonance or, or when they decide that it's right for them. Um, and I do believe that Bitcoin is actually regulates the regulator. And by that, I mean that we've always had this problem of you can, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and you give regulators power and then you have crony, um, you know, capitalism and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, corruption within the regulatory environment. And you have all sorts of checks and controls. So another regulator comes along to regulate that regulator. And then that one becomes corrupt. And you, you have all these regulators that sit on top of regulators. Um, but when you have a monetary system that allows you to own it, allows you to spend it, and allows you to have a fixed supply, my hope is that we get much, much better fiat currencies. Because I really don't want the banking system to collapse. That hurts my mom. That hurts my grandma. That hurts my sister. That hurts my brother. And that hurts everyone that I know that's not prepared for this. Mm -hmm. um, and almost everyone I know is not prepared for this. You know, we're a tiny, tiny community of monetary reformers or Bitcoiners or all these people looking at this stuff. I know that I'm in a position where I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. That's how I've set myself up. But most people won't. So I don't want the banking system to collapse in order for my Bitcoin to do well. Um, I would like, you know, I, I would like the fear to get a lot better. Um, and so Bitcoin performing this task of regulating the regulator, whereby if people have a choice to exit um, that can't be stopped, therefore they have to just make a better system. And that's what I hope, that's what I think the good outcome of all of this is, because fiat currency is still very useful. We use it for a reason because it's useful. And um, we don't want to go back to a barter system. Uh, you know, it's, it's a convenient, it's a human. If you took money out of the world, humans would reinvent it every time because it's more convenient than not having money and having to you know, trade. Um, so I do think that there is a good outcome that comes, that comes from all of this. But uh, you know, there's, there's a lot. I just wish that we didn't live in such a speculative environment where you as a person, you have to learn how to speculate because if you're not learning how to speculate, someone else is speculating for you. Just leaving your money in a bank is a bet on the credit risk of that bank and the credit rating of the FDIC and their ability to do it. Putting your money in real estate is a speculation that banks will continue to increase the mortgage supply that pushes up real estate that continues to push up prices. Um, investing in a 401k is a bet that the, the financial system has your best interest at heart um, and that uh, you know, all of these different things. So we only have one choice. Either you learn how to speculate in a speculative economy and prepare for different outcomes, or you outsource your speculation to someone else. And I'm, I'm, I can ensure you that they don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's such a great point. And, and uh, I think we'll just end it with that. 
Um, I think uh, it all goes back to the money system. It's not a good store of value, but you need to be able to park your wealth, as Simon just said. So, um, man, that was that was great. And I know we went over, so I appreciate you taking that extra time for us. Um, such a good conversation. Um, Simon, I know you talk a lot about on your own YouTube channel. Um, so you do have a YouTube channel. I'm going to make sure to link to that in the show notes. Where else should somebody go to keep up with you and follow what you're doing? Yeah, so I mainly live in three different places. Um, Simon Dixon is my YouTube channel, which is where I release uh, content as the economy unfolds. And I'll be releasing that video series on how I'll be investing million dollars in my savings in the Great Depression of 2020. Um, on Twitter, at Simon Dixon Twit. Um, and um, I also, my company, banktothefuture.com, is for those that want to invest in the equity and stocks of uh, financial technology companies building the future of finance. Yeah, great. Well, such a great conversation, Simon. Um, it is definitely interesting times that we're in and, and uh, exciting if you're in the right position and, and, and observing like kind of we are. So anyway, thanks so much for uh, coming and talking to us today. Yeah, pleasure. And really appreciate what you're doing, educating people in plain, simple language. I think that's so important um, for people to learn all this stuff. All right. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. 